So welcome to Cryptic, the Carlton Research Practice of Teaching Collaborative. My name is Federica Goffi. I'm the co-chair of the PhD program at the Israeli School of Architecture and Urbanism at Carlton University. And today, March 4th, 2021, we are conducting an interview about the doctoral program in History and Theory of Architecture, Architecture and Technology, and Landscape Architecture and Urban Studies at ETH Zurich in Switzerland. And with us, uh, Dr. Philip Ersprung is uh, gonna answer our questions about the history of program and also his research. Um, he is professor of the history of art and architecture and director of research. The interview is conducted by myself and two PhD students, Isabel Potworski and Marco Yanni. So thank you very much for being with us. Um, and Isabel is gonna start. Thank you. So, hello, my name is Isabel. Uh, firstly, I would also like to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. I'd like to start by asking you how the pandemic has affected your architectural research and teaching practice. It uh, has affected mostly the life of the students, uh, particularly the doctoral students, uh, because uh, many were not able to access resources, archives, travel. Uh, some were not able to travel home, for instance. Others were not able to travel to the school. And the interaction of the doc students was the most problematic part. Uh, for myself, it has not affected it so much uh, because first I had a sabbatical last spring. So I was anyway kind of detached from the uh, teaching. And then I was also writing a book. So I was in a way grateful for the seclusion and the calm. So in that sense, although I, I missed and still miss travel and the interaction with colleagues internationally, for instance, uh, seeing you now <laughs> live, uh, the um, pandemic, uh, because the whole uh, school infrastructure continued working, including the library, I, I could personally almost profit from the uh, calm and the, yeah, the impossibility to move physically. Thank you. So we wanted to begin by asking you uh, if you could tell us a little bit about the history of the PhD program in history and theory of architecture, architecture and technology, which I believe was funded in 2012, and the PhD in landscape architecture and urban studies funded in 2020 at ETH Zurich, and how did the program and specializations come to be? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the idea started uh, when I came to ETH in 2011. Uh, we had uh, about 100 doctoral students, but nobody knew their email address. Uh, so they were not organized. And we thought it's important to improve the conditions of research and work of the doc students and uh, make their life easier. Uh, and we did that by getting uh, funding uh, so that we could pay them three year stipends by organizing uh, a very flexible structure to support them methodologically and by inserting 
their practice into the daily life of the school to make them visible also as a cohort to others, uh, for instance, in assigning them a joint uh, centrally located space where they have permanent workplaces. Uh, started with history theory and architecture technology. That was the areas where we had actually most demand. Uh, the idea from the beginning was to have a school with four legs. Uh, we added the third leg, landscape and urban studies, uh, very recently. And the fourth leg would be design. Uh, this has so far not found the majority among the professors in design. Seems to be not so much necessity for it. Uh, so we keep that open. Fascinating. Thank you. And we wanted to ask you as well about your role uh, in the board of directors of the doctoral program in history and period of architecture and a little bit, I guess, how does the board of directors work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, together with my colleague, Philip Block, uh, I was kind of launching this idea. Uh, so I can say I was sort of the spokesperson uh, towards the outside. But generally, the board of directors is a very collegial uh, format. Main idea is to evade the dependency of doctoral students on one person, mm -hmm. the hierarchy, advisor student, and replace it by a multi-advisory um, or let's say a multi-person advisory system. According to the ETA rules, there is one main responsible advisor. This is also fine, I think. But the students, for instance, they can, they can you know, see other colleagues uh, whenever they wish. Uh, so we, we think that this is better to, to have a, a diverse uh, advisory role. That's why we have the board. It, the board also makes a selection of the candidates. Uh, we have about 200 applications per year, and we have two positions to fill in. And we rotate in giving teaching courses, uh, especially methodology or uh, reading. And of course, we, we talk to each other about the program. Thank you very much. So I, if I understand correctly, this means, uh, I guess the board of directors are also the main advisors on most of the dissertations. Yeah, the, the idea is that, uh, that one of the members of the board is also chosen as advisor, as main advisor by the students, yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. It, it, it doesn't have to be, but it, mm -hmm. so far it has always been like that. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, I was wondering if you could situate the ETH doctoral program in history and theory of architecture in the context of PhD programs in Switzerland, Europe, and the world. Yeah, Switzerland, there is nothing comparable. In Europe, uh, we looked mostly at the German model of the Graduiertenkolleg, uh, which is a well-established model since uh, about 20 years. Uh, we try to be less strict and less rigid than the Graduierten colleague uh, that has a kind of a monastery structure. So if, if you're in a colleague, that also means that you meet at least weekly. Uh, you ha have a lot of um, credit points to do. You have a lot of uh, tasks uh, which are pre-assigned. Uh, we try to be much more flexible. Uh, for instance, the students can but don't have to teach and they have, uh, let's say, a minimum requirement of, of joint courses, uh, but 
that's not as many as the graduate colleague have. The uh, uh, programs in the States uh, are at many schools are differently structured. So the PhD students come in in an earlier phase. Uh, they have two years or so to develop their topic. So the uh, overall duration is often five, six years. We cannot afford this. Uh, and the Swiss and European continental system is also different that the PhD is a shorter period but we expect the students to already come with their project. Uh, so the, the, the quality of the proposal and the achievements, the CV are the criteria for the selection. Uh, so this is a, is a difference to the, to the system of the United States. Thank you very much. And um, we were curious to know, you know, considering the relatively short history of PhD programs in architecture schools, if you could reflect on the, I guess, the wide diversity that's currently available uh, to students around the world with PhD in history, theory, or criticism versus PhD by designs or PhDs by practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, um, the relatively late introduction of this program generally has to do with the with the late professionalization of the academic field in architecture because of course it it's a field where you uh, the role of the schools is is primarily in in, in uh, educating practitioners so the the research component is uh, traditionally rather secondary right? this is this is now changing rapidly uh, as part of the uh, professionalization of the academic system in continent Europe, for instance, also of the economization, uh, for instance, in, in um, uh, Portuguese and Spanish schools, in order to teach, you need a PhD. You know? This is, has not been the case uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, so there's, there's a growing demand for, for this um, format, uh, probably also because of the, of the enormous you know, rapid progress in the technological field. Uh, architecture schools get more and more used to uh, you know, participate, absorb practices where engineering schools or, or uh, science schools have much more um, tradition. Thank you very much. So we were wondering if you could tell us also just a little bit about the curriculum structure that the students go through uh, in your program. and if you offer methodology courses, if there are specific methodologies that are very important uh, for one or the other um, mm -hmm. streams of your PhD program. Yeah, so we have a lean curriculum. Uh, it's very, very, um, very little requirements. No? We believe that the doctoral students know best what's good for them and that the most valuable resource which they have is, is time. Uh, so we give them a three-year grant and uh, suppose that they know to use the time best. Uh, we do offer a methodological introduction, uh, which is uh, widespread, uh, doesn't focus on one method at all. Uh, and then every member of the board, every uh, professor of the institute offers rotating a semester so that every PhD student who wishes uh, can certainly follow at least one of these semesters. And there, the professors are totally free to do what they want. For instance, I usually read a book 
during the semester with the group uh, and we we just have use it as a discussion platform others they uh, do more critical feedback on individual work or they read a series of texts this, this can differ uh, but there's there's no let's say main ideological uh, frame that that we follow thank you very much good morning dr Sprung. um we wanted to know what what is the role of the phd advisor uh, and committee uh, maybe in a formal sense and also in a informal sense uh, formal sense uh, it's the person who uh, who agrees with the student you know about the research students they can freely you know ask approach any professors uh, if they would be willing to direct the phd and the professors can say yes or no so but the first choice usually is from the student uh, they want to go to this or that person um the role is uh you're kind of responsible for uh, uh overseeing the entire process uh for instance the um uh, acceptance of the research plan uh, every student has to submit a research proposal after maximum one year which has to be agreed on by a committee uh, in order to um, make sure that the, the work is you know feasible and reasonable and that there's some kind of you know uh, agreement between advisor and student where, where to go uh, it's also the first person that the student will ask you know about method about feedback about progress uh, so it's let's say the most intensive exchange is with the main advisor um in the uh, board the the role is uh, split the responsibility for the selection so we we we, uh, we make a short list of the applications and then the interview the candidates and together we make the selection again there the idea is that it's better to have a group that selects but not one person alone uh, because it's uh, fairer towards the candidates and it also um, allows for instance you know professor to say no to a proposal uh, you know often one is one is um, happy if, if people come and say I would like to work with you but it, you know might be too much or it might be a wrong decision and then if someone else says listen um, perhaps this doesn't fit uh, then then this can be discussed in the group so it's kind of a shared responsibility but the, the the legal responsibility the final signature after the exams is the advisor i'd like to ask about the history and theory or gta institutes for branches the gta archives with collections of original documents and publications the gta verlag publishing house gta exhibitions and GTA Digital, how have these branches impacted doctoral work at ETH? Yeah, so the Institute was founded in 1967. Uh, it's the same year as uh, Peter Eisenman's Institute for Architecture and Studies in New York and a whole series of institutes around the globe. Uh, it's part of this, uh, again, academization boost in the 60s, plus uh, a demand within schools to kind of 
partially reformed them from being purely education schools. So this meant that uh, uh, that also you also needed to have some tools uh, besides the you know the the existing professorships. And that's why uh, at the same time it was decided to to build up this archive. Regularly, dissertations deal with holdings in the archive. Uh, they don't have to, but this 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 takes place, or uh, they can use part of the archives holding for their work. Uh, the um, exhibition is a younger. We consider exhibition as a medium of research. So the doc students, they have the possibility if they wish to, to, for instance, make an exhibition during their work or after it. Yeah? Doesn't happen often, it's, it's, quite, uh, it's quite a task, but it has happened actually that one student, for instance, um, uh, one student, you know, laid out the archive in the exhibition hall, sat there for a couple of weeks and everybody could watch how he works. Yeah? Um, so that's the exhibition part, the, the publication part, that's, uh, an, let's say, a possibility for outstanding dissertations to be published in the uh, program. And the, um, the digital project that has so far not been uh, used for, for um, doctoral studies, but it's, it's possible that this will happen. This is a very young branch here. Thank you very much. We're going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to ask you questions about your your own research. Thank you. Um, so how does your research with the Future Cities Laboratories as principal investigator of tourism and cultural heritage relate to the human and non-human? Uh, we were interested as part of a study group working on cities to find alternative concepts and image uh, so that, that uh, kind of, you know, enlarge the... Um, traditional methodologies and did this in an interesting way, including artists, musicians, uh, writers, architects, a volcanologist. And the topic where we, where we try to uh, apply our questions were a series of volcanoes on the island of Java. Uh, so the, the human non-human relation is of course uh, the, the interaction man, not man-made, man geology, and the connection to urbanism and architecture, which of course is is not um, is not totally clear, <laughs> um, uh, has also to do with the fact that volcanoes, uh, you know, shape the land and they're used as building materials. They are sites of culture and religious uh, religious uh, uh, phenomena. But basically, it was it was an attempt to uh, to find a new terrain to talk about the city, as if you would you would um, look at it from a very different angle than usually. Um, what is the value, in your opinion, in incorporating the non-human in architecture? Uh, well, the the Anthropocene discussion teaches us that it's uh, it's crucial to take 
other perspectives than the anthropocentric perspective that humans are not necessarily the, the center of everything that we also uh, should consider the perspective of for instance animals uh, or plants or uh, you know geology rocks and uh, i think that this is part more and more part also of the architectural practice to uh, to take that into consideration you can say this is what landscape architects does anyway, but perhaps it doesn't it doesn't uh, use these terms uh, so far. No? So it's probably part of the responsibility of architect to to see this bigger picture and to be capable of of you know addressing issues from other perspective than the usual anthropocentric perspective. Uh I just want to add uh, something just quickly. I was reading this, uh, uh, I'm reading a comic book called Sandman, the graphic novel. And uh, they talked about, um, there's a chapter in, in, the, in the story about uh, um, life, the life of a cat, but in the perspective of a cat. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, obviously this is also anthropocentric being told by a person, but it's the most amazing thing just as a, uh, a way to look into the life of something you know, seemingly simple as a domestic cat, you know, it was really amazing. Just have just those kinds of exercises are, I don't know if it, it, it might relate to what you're saying, but they're extremely useful, uh, especially like a narrative context. You're trying to tell the story of this cat and how it lived and its instincts and all that. Um, so I thought that was, uh, I don't know, just wanted to share no, Absolutely. That. No, for instance, yeah. we, we read the, the, um, the uh, companion uh, guide by Donna Haraway as, as one of the, one of the sources to talk about the interaction uh, humans dogs for instance and uh, i think this is absolutely fruitful to to look at that yeah absolutely um so next question is uh sarah morris states that the sublime uh, aestheticizes or brings forth uh, to the experience of the senses the forces of capitalism would you say that invisible forces create a genius loci within the capitalist sublime if so, capitalism is one force, but are there other examples of architecture that deal with sublime and invisible forces other than capitalism? How would you describe the concept of the sublime in architecture? Yeah, so the sublime is an aesthetic category which is generally used to describe the confrontation of humans with something that goes beyond our capacity to grasp them that is dangerous this is potentially uh, life-threatening but which is turned into an aesthetic phenomenon by distance uh, so it loses its danger no a thunderstorm is if you're struck by lightning uh, can kill you but if you're on a terrace observing it it's a beautiful spectacle no? a sublime spectacle so the sublime in a way is, is a mediation between uh danger and the human huh? and this this can be a mediation between a natural phenomenon like a waterfall an avalanche a thunderstorm a lightning it can also mediate between a non-natural phenomenon such a big factory it can have a sublime effect but probably not if you just lost your job in the factory or if you have a 12-hour shift in the machine hall, no? but if you have a distance to look at it, this distance makes it appear as something sublime. Capitalism 
you know, a big bank, an accumulation of gold, uh, an accumulation of wealth uh, can also have this sublime effect. Uh, it's something which uh, you might be a victim of because you're exploited, but it's also, of course, a tremendous force, which if you aestheticize it, uh, also develops its, its own appeal. Uh, the internet has something, can be depicted as something that is also sublime. Well, uh, so one of the ingredients of uh, objects that are sublimated or made into sublime phenomena is bigness, repetition, and if you want to go back in history, uh, almost any religious building deals with this component. The big cupola, the big campanile mediating between the human sphere and the divine sphere opens a sublime field. Again, industrial buildings. And if we go into the contemporary uh, world, uh, CCTV by OMA Rim Callhouse, for instance, would for my uh, issue be a typical building dealing with the sublime. A big stadium will also have a sublime effect. A military parade field, a military parade can have this sublime effect. No? It, is, it is a display of power, but you see it from a tribune. Uh, this makes it sublime. Even an explosion of an atomic bomb, if you see it from a distance, can have this sublime effect. Of course, not if you're hurt. Huh? So there's a deep ambivalence in the sublime. Huh? Uh, because it, it has to do with death and destruction, but also the beauty of that. And there's a religious component, uh, usually also tied to it. Kohlhaas's uh, concept of bigness, in my view, is you know a contemporary word for sublime. So just in sort of summary, would you say it, it's a sort of a sense of awe and wonder and then package within that is this amazing, on one hand, possibility, but on the other hand, uh, incredible danger too. So yeah, absolutely. This... Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah, so a typical, uh, uh, for philosophers like Burke, a typical uh, sublime uh, phenomenon would be an, a wild animal, a tiger, uh, but only if it's in a cage. Huh? <laughs> If it runs towards you, it is not sublime at all. <laughs> Our next question is about the, your 2013 essay, In Search of Socialist Space, in which you draw attention to the emphasis on labor in Radar Mendes' photographs of East German workers between 1967 and 1990. The workers are shown in their context their work is not heroicized, but shown for what it is. Based on these photographs, you draw conclusions about the nature of socialist space. It is coherent, surveyable, and shows objects in their surroundings. You contrast this portrayal with capitalist space, which is a, quote, economy of representation, end quote, that hides labor and presents its subjects against a blurry or infinite background. What are the implications and consequences of the capitalist representation of labor? And what, are the par what parallels do you see with the quote, um, immaterial labor, end quote, of architects and the value of our profession's work? And mm -hmm. lastly, 
what is left out of or omitted from representation today? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so the hypothesis is that uh, modernity does not want to represent labor because it uh, has to disguise the scandalous roots of its prosperity. Huh? The, the labor is exploited, uh, so we cannot make an image of the labor uh, because this would reveal the exploitative nature of capitalism. In socialism, uh, labor is depicted, but in some sense it's also heroized, so it also disguises the exploitation of the worker. Uh, but there's, let's say, the, the, the range of possible displays is, is still bigger than in, in, in the capitalist systems. Uh, because there is today, in a way, only capitalism, <laughs> and industrial labor has uh, been ousted to, to places uh, where, where labor is still cheap, no? and it's kind of been made even more invisible than it was before. The question, of course, is how is immaterial labor represented? For instance, the work that uh, we, you, do as architects, as professors, as students in architecture. And this is a question which I, I don't really know how to answer. Uh, I, I, I don't have an answer, but I'm, of course, very attentive, interested, for instance, to see, although I cannot grasp it, what uh, the Zoom meeting means that we're having now, for instance. Um, you can see into my office or room. I can see into your room or office. No? Uh, something which traditionally for photography, for instance, was not really possible to do because you had to detach the subject from the space where it works or lives. And now we see it. But what exactly do we see <laughs> that I can I don't know huh? I, I just see that I often see a bed huh? in the room that I discuss with uh, students meaning that probably this is the only room to work and live so that work and life uh, have blurred meaning that there is um, the entire risk uh, and costs for the workspace is also put on the shoulders of the worker. Why do all the university campuses close? You can say, of course, it's, it's for protection, but it's also to outsource the risk. You please get sick at home. Uh, and, but this is, I haven't found uh, a real tool to, to make that you know, fruitful so far. It's kind of happening now constantly. Thank you. Um, may I just ask you to clarify one um, notion that you mentioned, which is the immaterial labor and um, how the labor of architects, given even that it's linked to building, mm -hmm. is immaterial. Oh, so I use the concept that is coined by theoreticians, uh, mostly Italian. Uh, um, uh, Federica knows them, of course, well. Uh, 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 um, 
Paolo Virno, uh, Lazzarato, uh, Antonio Negri and others, uh, working in the 60s, starting in the 60s, 70s to, to discuss what happens when industry gives place to um, information industry. No? And this transformation means that uh, labor uh, cannot be uh, reduced to the production of, of objects on a conveyor belt, but it's uh, also um, uh, del dealing with, with um, you know, ideas, images, words, uh, projects. Huh? So the project would be a typical result of immaterial labor. So architects, uh, kind of an interesting case to study that because there's a lot of tangible results. It's also one of the reasons probably why it's so attractive. But what, of course, um, what you also do is you, you develop ways of life, you know, ways of desire, ways of cohabitation, modes of, of uh, designing one's being together. No? And this is, can lead to objects, but it's, it's also material. And part of the material label also means that uh, the uh, traditional differentiation between the private space and the workspace blurs. No? And that your, our subjectivity is also exploited. No? Uh, the, the subjectivity, our, 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 you know, our life in a way is part of the research that's used. So the iPhone is again an, a tool that both allows one to you know, work from different places, but it also allows your employer to call you all the time, no? meaning that you're just available around the clock. Uh, so the, for the theoreticians of immaterial label, uh, they're trying to locate places where labor is exploited, where we don't see it and where it's not protected. No? Yes. I can say, yeah, you work from eight to six, this is your shift. Uh, but what about the weekends when you have to answer emails and uh, you know who who pays you for the data that you you give about your behavior? No? That's also part of the exploitation of of your kind of recreational leisure life. No? So this blurring is again super ambivalent. No? Made easier by the immaterial nature. It's easier to exploit around the clock by the transformation of work. Absolutely. The next couple of questions uh, that I would like to ask are about the notion of performative historiography and fiction as a way of uh, avoiding established narratives. In your book, Alan Capital for Robert Smithson and the Limits to Art, you argue against, quote, monopolies of meaning, end quote, with regards to established historical narratives, specifically the duality of modernism and postmodernism. Art scholarship, instead, should, quote, continuously review its own premises, end quote. Scholarship should incorporate the, quote, position and motivation of the historian in the spirit of performative writing, end quote. It should not aim to be objective for quote, interpretation and historicization are neither neutral nor disinterested, end quote. Similarly, in your article, Melancholia, Write New Theory, 
you proposed the concept of melancholia as a new architectural theory that would replace that would place us within the phenomenon rather than the term postmodern, which places us outside and at a distance. What implications does this approach have for architectural research methods? When is it inadvertently subjective? When is an overtly subjective interpretation valuable? And when does it lose credibility, becoming unverifiable or a purely private experience? Mm -hmm. Thank you. So the performativity uh, comes from feminist, post-feminist studies as a critique of hiding behind the so-called objective distance. Huh? Uh, performativity means that you, you uh, demonstrate your motivation, your position, your interests, so that someone can also attack you. No? And that's why I, I encourage my students also to use the word I, when they write texts, because uh, there is, in a way, no real objectivity anyway. Uh, and it's more fruitful to depict an issue from your standpoint so that someone else can say, but I disagree or I agree, than to say this is how it is. No? Um, of course, it, it can lead to uh, a subjective um, idiosyncratic depiction of issues where someone might say, yeah, this is, this is just your personal opinion, uh, so what? So th th this is absolutely possible, but I, I, in a way, I, I prefer that from these, this claim to oversee everything from a distance that just, you know, has the claims to have the authority on, on judgment. And it's yeah, it's also f formally more exciting to to follow such discussions. I think you know. Mm -hmm. the, uh, a related question is about your text, performative historiography, uh, in your book, representation of labor in performative historiography. In this text, you argue that the author should quote play open cards end quote as you mm -hmm. just explained explicitly stating their position and agenda with respect to the subject matter. You write that you, quote, don't want to remain a neutral or objective observer. Mm -hmm. Rather, you want to engage and interfere, end quote. One reason for this position, you explain, is, quote, to illuminate the fictionality and contingency of historical description, end quote. Can you please elaborate on mm -hmm. this objectivity versus fiction slash contingency in mm -hmm. historiography. To what extent does your historical research aim to uncover what may truly or objectively have happened? Mm -hmm. So the, every, every history is also a story. It's, it's forming something into a narrative that has happened. Uh, so there is, there is inevitably a fictional part now because one tells the story of something you one connects data one connects things that have happened uh, this doesn't mean that 
that you can invent the past or you can invent story. No, there is there is documents, and as a historian, uh, of course, I I, uh, I follow these rules and I adhere to these methods. I cannot just claim something that's that's you know wrong. I'm 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 very also aware of the current um, absolutely scandalous and disastrous uh, way. You know, truth is ridiculized. Look at politics, look at medicine, uh, uh, look at the discussion about evolution, and it is incredibly dangerous, you know, absolutely abysmal uh, and and frightening uh, tendency happening. So I'm certainly uh, not advocating for that. (laughs) Uh, There are facts, uh, you as a historian, you need to be able to show how you go to a certain discovery. You others should be able to repeat what you found out. No, that's what I mean by playing open card. But to claim this is the truth and nothing else uh, is also, of course, dangerous and exclusive. And that's why um, I d- d- try to emphasize that uh, there is always a fictional ingredient in historiography in any writing. It's also something creative. Uh, it's not a telephone book to write a, a book on the history of architecture. And so it's kind of an acknowledgement of the limitation of your own position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, see an, I see an excerpt um, and I'm also not, I'm not Wikipedia, I'm not a, I'm not a dictionary, um, I'm, I'm a narrator as historiographer. My next question pertains to your 2016 essay, What Buildings Know. Mm -hmm. And you write that architectural history and theory have brought about their own marginalization through specialization. They should once again focus on buildings or what you call, quote unquote, building knowledge. It is not knowledge about buildings, but the knowledge embedded in them. You propose that this refocusing be done by addressing an aspect of buildings that has been repressed in architectural discourse, namely labor, of the contractor, of the construction workers, and of those who pay the rent. For instance, Erin Santiago's study of the late 20th century North American developer built house might reveal the effects of economic pressure such as mortgage, unemployment, a divorce, or a new child on the house interior and exterior. They seem to imply that the inclusion of labor and economic factors would give a more complete or factual analysis of a building. Um, So this comes back to the same theme. However, you write that facts should be combined with fiction. Um, And so one arrives at the knowledge embedded in buildings by animating them as in literature, considering the emotions that a building might feel or what a facade may have witnessed over the years. You present a similar approach in your essay what Buildings Know, Kashif Chowdhury in Dhaka, where you read meanings into photos of people and objects that were witnesses of urban change. Um, so maybe perhaps elaborating a bit more on what it means to have a fictional approach, mm-hmm. um, avoiding without avoiding uh, the weakening of the factual analysis, which as you say, is quite important. And why does the production of building knowledge benefit from both of these approaches, both the objectivity and the fiction? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it has again to do with the, on the one hand, this, this uh, interest in the invisibility 
or repression of, of work and labor. Uh, and this is kind of an, an, an almost an X-ray gaze. Uh, how can we uh, how can we unpack, see through uh, objects and take into consideration uh, those that made them but are not part of the story anymore? That's in a way what the, the French um, historiographic school of the Annal, uh, 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s on, tries to do. History is not solely the history of the general and the star, but it's also the history of those who have not been sung. That that kind of methodology uh, reverses that. And of course, to to project knowledge on a building is uh, that's in a way a fictional operation that I do no, uh, it's clear that I, I, I animate a building uh, and infuse it with kind of human <laughs> capacities my team wants my attention so I'll, I'll have to leave you in, in about five minutes I'm sorry for that so uh, uh, animate um, <laughs> animate uh, objects in order to, again, have a, a, a more diverse and multi-perspective uh, approach to the topic. But I, 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 of course, I, I'm aware that the building does not really know something, no? but we, we can pretend. No? And sometimes, you know, as, as a child, uh, as a, for kids, objects are animated. No? A, a rock is a person. And, and the table can speak, you know? Uh, and why do we have to get rid of that just because we're adults, no? Very fresh approach to things. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm just, as you say, conscious of the time. So I, I'd, like to, I'd like to close by coming back to one of the questions about uh, the PhD program, mm -hmm. that's all right. Given that you have been involved in teaching at ETH for over 20 years, uh, may I ask you about what changes you've seen in educational approaches and what's remained consistent? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, growth, uh, much more demand. Uh, it's also been much more accepted within the community that uh, PhD students uh, are part of the practice of architecture. Uh, research, there is no such thing as research, there's only researchers, uh, and these are people, huh? So this this is now more and more accepted. You now the the anxiety of of many uh, professors and also students about these person that do uh, you know that sit there and do their research has uh, given way to much more curiosity interaction and 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 you know also bachelor master students they come in and say mm, how how does one do that I would also like to do that. No? So yeah, it's. I think it's it's a it's a really substantially growing demand, and also much more porosity than it used to be. Thank you. Welcome. Yeah, thank you indeed very much. You know, I really we really appreciated the opportunity to you know ask you these questions and, and learn more about your research, and I really hope we'll have a chance. You know, once things you know, get back to, you know, a more normal situation. Yeah. We have a chance to have you visit the school in person, participate in some of our activities in the doctoral programs and, and beyond. Mm. 
So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, it was a pleasure uh, to me. I, I, I wish all the best to, to you and your, your group. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank